0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Amen. Good to see you guys this morning. If you would, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, just wave a hand around nice and high in the air that we will make sure that you get one. We believe it's important that you have opportunity to follow along with us as we're reading through. That way you can make sure I'm not making this stuff up when I talk to you. Um, But also, we believe there's just something important about having the Word of God. So whether you're using your app or your phone or or whatever, just we we do encourage you to follow along. We're only going to be looking at two verses today, so your work's going to be easy. We're going to be in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, and it's near the back, easiest way to tell you. Um, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, those Bibles that they're handing out to you with your hands nice and high there, those Bibles are a gift to you. We pray that God will use that to just teach you more and more about how amazing, gracious, and wonderful He is and about His love for you. First Peter chapter 1. It's great to see all you guys here. We do have a lot of guests here on Easter as there often is, and we wanna just say welcome to you guys. It's great to have you guys here. We hope that you guys will hang out with us for a season and just uh, um, spend some time with us, not just on Easter, not just on the holidays, but, but maybe come around and, and learn with us as we learn more and more about God. Um, I, I don't wanna be deceptive to any of our guests here, though, so I'm gonna be straight up with you. So if you're a guest, listen up. If you don't know Jesus, we're hoping we get you today. Um, and, and, and I mean that in all ways, and maybe a better way of saying that is that our desire is that the grace, mercy, and love of God would wreck you today in a good way in the same way that it has us. Our desire is not that we get a lot of people here so Heritage becomes some big mega church. In fact, as the church grows, it just makes a lot of things more difficult, to be quite honest with you. That's not the goal whatsoever. The goal is that you would be part of the greater kingdom of God, that you would experience the grace and mercy and forgiveness that we have found. You are not in a room with a bunch of goody-goody church people. Amen, Heritage family? You're in the room with a bunch of sinners that are broken, that have come to the understanding that we cannot do this on our own, and who have experienced the forgiveness, grace, and power of Jesus Christ in our lives, and we can't live without it. That's where you are. Unperfect, broken people just learning to love Jesus the best we can, day after day, messing up all the time, but relying on Jesus' grace day after day after day. Amen, heritage people? So if that sounds like you, you're in a good place. You're in a good place. Um, and, and really, in particular, we're here, though, not just to get you. Like I said when we opened up, the Easter service a lot of times becomes sort of evangelistic in nature. And people are like, I literally will have some of you email me or, or call me and text me and things and say, like, Hey, my cousin's coming. He never comes to church. And he doesn't know Jesus. you got to get him. And I'm like, thanks. No pressure. No um, pressure. That's your job, actually. Um, For the record, our job here and my job here is to just exalt Jesus, point to Jesus and the hope that he's given us, and pray that the Holy Spirit does work. Because look, there's nothing that I or anyone else in this room can do in our own power to save. Only Jesus Christ can save. And the way that we know that he can is because he is alive. He's alive. It's an absolute truth. Another thing, because Easter services tend to be very evangelistic in nature, um, one of the things that tends to happen in a lot of them is that people use the Easter service to prove the truth of all of these things. I've done this myself, and a lot of people do this, to to go through and and explain why all these things are true. Um, But we're not going to do that today. He's alive. That's the baseline we're starting with. Just accept it and ride along with us. Amen? Amen. So this is what we're going to do. But we are going to start with some basics today. I mean, it's college basketball season. Um, I, I'm sure all of us, because we do desire to be better. We may not be good people. We want to be good people. So, so we're all going to pull for Wisconsin against the Duke Blue Devils Monday night. And that's probably what we should do. Um, <laughs> but sometimes evil wins. I don't know. I'm, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. <laughs> Wherever Kyle is, I'm sorry. Um, but, but John Wooden the great Hall of Fame coach from UCLA, he used to start with the basics on an incredible level. When a group of freshmen would come to UCLA to play, he would start off not by teaching them zone offenses or zone defenses or any of those kind of things. He would start off by saying, guys, these are your socks. Let me show you how to put them on properly. No joke. That's how he would start. Uh, Great Hall of Fame coach Vince Lombardi, he used to get these rookie football players onto his team with the Green Bay Packers, and he would famously start off by saying, gentlemen, this is a football. Like it doesn't get more basic than that. And sometimes it's good to go back and reiterate where we are and start. And so the basic that I'm going to start with today is that this in our hands, whatever form it takes in your hands, this is not just a book that we're here to read. This is not a collection of moral fables, moral tales. It is not a history book. It is not a novel. This is the very word of God himself. God's own words, inspired and written by men, but inspired, birthed by God through men. This is what it is. And this book, no matter what book inside it you open up, no matter what chapter you turn to, it's all about one thing. The Bible tells the story of Jesus Christ, God become flesh, and of the great redemptive work, the fact that he came, lived, died, rose again, and desires to save all of mankind, and not just us individually, but that God is putting all things back together again. All things back together again. No more 40 degree Aprils coming up, I assure you that God is restoring all things, and this book tells the story of this all the way through. This is what it is about. Now, the interesting thing about the book, though, is that it is definitely written by imperfect people. We're in 1 Peter, for example. The author of this book, interestingly enough, his name's Peter. It's convenient, easy to remember. Peter very imperfect, maybe chief of imperfect people, at least in the New Testament of the things that you read. Peter himself, on Easter week, before Jesus went to the cross, denied even knowing Jesus. Cussed at some little girl and said, I don't know him, bleepity bleep, trying to prove that he had nothing to do with Jesus. This is the author of this very book. But, but we can't just put that all on Peter. This is what all of Jesus' followers really did that week. In fact, in the days between the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on Friday and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Sunday, it would have been difficult to find a follower of Jesus. Oh, there were times historically where Jesus fed 5,000 on a hill or where he taught big crowds and it looked like he had big followings, but... What we do know historically and from the books of the gospel and from the book of Acts is that really the true followers of Jesus around this time were small in number. In fact, after Jesus' resurrection, when he sends them to Jerusalem to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, something we'll have to get to some other time, there's only about 120 of them gathered together. It's not a large movement at that time. And on the week of Easter, in particular, between the crucifixion on Friday and the resurrection on Sunday, it would have been really difficult to find some of these guys. They were hidden, scared to death, and afraid. Because they thought all of this was over. In their wildest imaginations, they would have never thought that we would be gathering here today talking about this because they thought this was done. I mean, history had had person after person after person after person that had come onto the scene and claimed to be the Messiah, the one who had come liberate Israel from its captors, set things right, the very Son of God. Many people had come through time, had come through history, saying that they were the Messiah, and in every single case, their end was the same. They died, and they never came back. And so when Jesus was arrested and then crucified, they scattered out of fear. They believed it was over. None of them brought lawn chairs to the tomb to wait for Jesus to come again. It didn't even cross their mind. They were absolutely consumed with fear that they too were next, that they would be arrested, that they would be thrown in prison. That was their fear. So they ran and hid, praying that the guards wouldn't find them, praying that they wouldn't end up on the cross in the same way. But then something happened. I mean, something major happened and changed. Because in a very short time, in just a couple of weeks, this group of people go from scared to death, running from their lives, terrified that they're going to be arrested and killed, to preaching the resurrection everywhere they go with no concern whatsoever whether they get arrested guaranteed that they would get arrested. In fact, every one of the disciples of Jesus would be arrested, persecuted, and murdered, killed for their belief, except for one, but they would give it their best shot with him. He would be boiled in oil, exiled off to another island, persecuted like crazy, beaten, but not one of them ever recanted. Like something happened, because to go from, we're scared that we're gonna get arrested to bring jail, we don't care. Paul saying, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Like, to die isn't loss for me, to die is gained. Something significant and major happened. They were filled with an unprecedented boldness that they didn't have before. And the Bible, even though many of them are the very people that wrote these words themselves, they were really honest about the fact that they were a bunch of screw-ups and cowards. And yet something changed. And so in the scriptures, suddenly they're going all over the place, planting churches, leading people in worship, and declaring over and over, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. Throw me in jail, it doesn't matter. They threaten them, you're going to go to jail if you don't stop preaching Jesus. He's like, do what you want. I can't but keep preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Something changed. And so Many of them began to write, they planted churches, and Peter, in particular, begins to write a letter. We are now in the epistle of 1 Peter. An epistle is not the wife of an apostle, in case you weren't sure. An epistle is just a letter. It's a fancy word for letter. And so Peter wrote a letter to a group of Christians that he could absolutely relate to. Because at the time he wrote this letter, about 30 years later, persecution was on the increase, and there were Christians who had been scattered because of the persecution. People were being arrested, people were being killed, people were being beaten, and their response to it was fear and scattering. They were in exile, the same exact thing that Peter did when Jesus was crucified. So he gets it, he can relate, he's been there himself. And so he writes this book, this letter, referred to as 1 Peter, the one that we're looking at today. And his sole purpose in writing 1 Peter to them was to encourage them, hey guys, don't stop living for Jesus, even if living for Jesus costs you your very life. Keep following him. Don't do what I did and recant. Don't do what I did and deny him. Keep Following Jesus. That's the overall message. We're only going to look at two verses of it today, but I encourage you, read this book this week. Learn of this. So this is Peter's hope. He wants to encourage people to follow Jesus, to not back down, even though persecution was there and it was about to get a whole lot worse. He's saying, hang in there, hang in there. And his motive for doing that is obvious. He he doesn't go in and say, guys, keep following Jesus, because if you don't, Jesus will be really angry he couldn't do that because he had experienced the exact opposite had he not he himself had said i don't know that man and yet jesus forgave him in fact the book of mark says that a special word after the resurrection was sent to peter to say peter it's okay i'm alive so peter knew that wouldn't be true so he's not trying to use fear guys make sure you stay with jesus because if you deny him i don't care how bad the persecution is god's going to be angry with you that's not what he does He doesn't try to motivate them by saying, if you want to be saved, you need greater faith. So your faith must be strong. So you can't leave. You've got to show how much you believe. Nope, he didn't do that either. His motive was simple. He wrote to give these people, or really a better way of saying it, to remind these people that they have hope. He literally writes them to say, keep following Jesus because you have hope. Hope. In fact, later on, there's gonna be a verse that shows up in his writings that's very widely quoted in Christendom today. He says to him, he says, hey guys, be ready, have an answer ready for when people ask you about the hope that is within you. What he means about it is this. Guys, life's about to get really hard. And he's really honest about that in his writings. Persecution is coming. Death, imprisonment is coming. But you, because you have hope, because you are following Jesus, people are going to see the way you react to the persecution and the difficulties in life that are coming, and they're going to be like, that guy is different. There's something up with him. What is it? i got to find out. And they're going to ask you, how can you have hope? How is it that you can hold it all together when everything around you is completely falling apart? How is that even possible? The book is written for the purpose of having hope. And he's saying people are going to see you and they're going to know that something is different about you. And that thing that's different is that you have hope. This is not argued in the world today. Hope is an incredibly important thing. It's worth asking, what is hope? You, you can do a search, a Google search, on, uh, and just look up hope, the importance of hope. And there are articles after articles and studies after studies that show how incredibly important hope is to humans even today. For example, Psychology Today did a massive study or reported on a massive study that was done regarding hope. The results that they came back is they said that, for example, hope for law students Hope is a better predictor of GPA for the average law student than their LSAT scores or even their undergrad scores ever were. A student with hope routinely finishes higher than those without. In fact, they went on to do to broaden the study after looking at that, getting out of even just law school. They went into all sorts of areas. And by the way, that's significant. I mean, lawyers, hope, you can't imagine there's too many. But that's what was going on. If you're a lawyer, we love you. I'm sorry. Thank you for protecting our church. But anyway... They broadened their search after that. Then they they started looking at just education in general, and they found that hope related to higher academic achievement above any other variable out there. In fact, there were studies and things done. Parade Magazine actually even ran a story of this self-made millionaire named Eugene Land. Eugene Land was a self-made millionaire, and at one point in the early 80s, he was invited to go to East Harlem Primary School Number 121. And he was gonna to speak to the sixth grade class at East Harlem about their future and success and you can do it the American way. If you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work hard, you can be a millionaire just like me, all that kind of stuff. And so he goes to the school where he's gonna speak but as he spent time there before it was time for the assembly with that sixth grade class, before it was his time to talk to them, he was spending time with the principal and learning about the makeup of the school and the students that were there and he quickly started realizing he had a horrible speech planned. Because he was talking to the principal and he said, okay, just out of curiosity, how many kids am I going to be speaking to today? 61, he was told. How many kids are in this school altogether? Uh, a few hundred. Okay, but out of them, how many of them will actually graduate from college? And the, the principal's answer was, I don't know. One. One. East Harlem, poor area, no hope. And, and, no matter what happened, these kids would watch kid after kid after kid go through school and everyone ended up in the same place, in the same neighborhood, living in the same projects, in the same kind of houses. We see the same thing in Uganda all the time. You'll see people that actually went to school and went to get educations, but because, the, because hope is so bleak and the economic environment in Uganda is so weak that you can have a guy who went to college and live right next door to someone who never finished primary school and their houses sometimes don't look that much different. And so there's a lot of people that have issues with hope. Like, why try? Why go to school? Why do any of this stuff? I don't have any hope to ever do any better anyway. And so all these kids in Harlem, this is what they were experiencing. And so now Eugene Land's got to go in there and he's got to give this speech. You can do it. You can do it. You can make something of yourself. This is America. All that kind of stuff. And he was like, my speech is worthless. Worthless. So he walked in there. He literally had it on paper. He's standing in front of those kids. And he was like, He put it aside. He goes, I'm begging you, just stay in school, and suddenly on a whim, he goes, I'll tell you what, any one of you kids who actually graduates from high school, I will pay your college education. He just on a whim makes that promise to 61 sixth graders at East Harlem Primary School number 121 in the early 80s, and they actually documented, they got the names, they worked the whole thing out. You graduate from high school, I will pay your college tuition. You want to know what the result of that promise was in those kids' lives? 55 of the 61 kids went on to college after that. 91% of those children in a school where they said one kid will go to school. And he was so blown away by the results that in the 90s they started a foundation, the Eugene Land Foundation. And since then they've put over 8,000 Harlem kids through college. And the difference, the only difference, these kids have the same upbringing as all the other kids around there. They live in the same environment. They have the same economic background, same kind of family structures, all these things. The difference is some of these kids were given hope. And hope changed everything for them. Psychology Today went on to say, hope is head and shoulders above any other vehicle of success by comparison. Nothing will guarantee success in someone's life or longevity more than hope. Nothing. People with hope endure pain and hardships. People with hope work towards goals. People with hope can even fight stronger and harder through medical difficulties. I mean, it's unbelievable, but by contrast, people without hope, life is difficult. If you look up things like depression, anxiety, suicide, all of these sorts of issues which are rampant in the world around us, high, if not number one on the list of symptoms every single time, you'll see the word hopelessness. Without hope, what's the point? You get this mindset that things will never change. I am always going to be like this. Nothing will ever get better. I have nothing to look forward to. I have no hope. This is what it is. Hope is, without a doubt, the most undervalued aspect of human development and success there is out there. Without question, it's hope. Now, listen, there's a big, big difference between like biblical hope and Well, the hope that we tend to talk about most of the time. Most of the time when we talk about hope in our day and age, we're talking about things that aren't exactly sure, but it's sort of like a wish. Like of all the possible outcomes, this is the one that I wish or I hope happens. I hope Duke loses Monday night. I hope it doesn't rain Easter Sunday. I hope I catch fish when I go fishing. But the outcome of all those things, we just don't know for sure. They're uncertain. Listen, that is not biblical hope. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope has nothing to do with uncertainties or best possible outcome. The biblical hope that 1 Peter talks about, that Peter, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to us about, is about a joyful, confident expectation. Peter writes about something that, look, you can bank everything on this. It's gonna happen. Put your hope in this and you will not be made a fool of. It's not a variable. It's not floating in the wind. It's not, and then we'll see if we're right. It's no, I have hope. I have confidence. I have a surety in this. And so with that in mind, in 1 Peter, Peter writes, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. Now, like I said, this whole book is about hope. And there are so many things in 1 Peter that we could learn about hope that can inspire hope, that can fuel hope. There's tons of things there, but just in these two verses alone, there's three aspects of hope that the hope that Peter is presenting to us, the hope that Jesus gives us that are worth our attention today. And that's the only two verses we're going to look at. And those three things are that our hope is anchored in the past, that our hope is active in the present, and that our hope anticipates our future. It is anchored active, and anticipates. Like a good Baptist, three A's. Give me an amen. Amen. I worked hard on that. So let's just look at them quickly. We're not Baptists, by the way, but I did used to be. Biblical hope is anchored in the past. Look what he says in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, Let me explain something to you, especially if, especially if, if you're not a Christian or you don't know a whole lot about the faith in particular, please pay attention to this right here. We do not have hope as Christians because of stuff that we do today, tomorrow, and the next week. That's not where our hope comes from. We don't have hope because we do stuff. In fact, our hope is not rooted in us or anything we do at all. Paul gives two sources and reasons that we have hope. God's great mercy and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's it. He doesn't say, we have hope because we're good people. No, he says, we have hope because God has great mercy and Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And the thing that's significant about both of those, they already happened. They have happened in the past. That's why I call this, this is anchored in the past. It's not waving around. If our hope was based on what we do, then some days we'd have hope and then some days we don't really have hope and you're just sort of all over the place. But our hope is anchored in the true Fact that God is gracious and has extended grace to us, and that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Our hope is anchored to those past events, amen? Anchored to them. It has nothing to do with what we do, it has everything to do with what has already happened. And so, so th- let me explain this to you, Christianity is not a religion, it's not. Now, I know we use that term, and maybe because we don't really have a better one to use, and I know it gets listed as religion, and we'll even sometimes ourselves call it a religion, but in all honesty, Christianity is not a religion. And here's why. And it's a massive difference. Religion is about ascent. Christianity is about descent. So, so this is what I mean. Every religion in the world is about how you ascend to God how you can ascend to be a better person, to how you can ascend to a better afterlife into heaven. Here are the steps that you do. This is what you do, and if you do this and you become a better person, you get this. Even things such as karma or Hinduism and reincarnation, if you do well, you ascend, and you come back as a great thing. If you do bad, you're, you gotta start all over. You're like, a I don't know, a sloth when you come back the next time, and so now you gotta be a good sloth, so maybe next time you come back as like a horse or a dog. You're making some progress at that point. If you really blow it, you're a cat, right? So that's how that works. That's how, it's true, it's true. That's why dogs hate cats and dog is God spelled backwards. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, but listen, Religion is about ascent. I will ascend to God. I have to do this to become this person. That is not what Christianity is at all, no matter what people have turned it into. Christianity is about descent. It's about the understanding that God saw that we were hopeless, we had no shot at ever being able to attain the perfection that is required for someone to be in the presence of a holy God in heaven, but that he had great mercy and great pity, and that he himself humbled himself and descended and entered into human history in the form of, frankly, a poor homeless carpenter, that he walked humbly through life, that he was perfect in a way we could never be. And that he humbled himself and went to the cross where our sin was poured out upon him. The wrath of God for all of our sin and rebellion against him was poured out on the person of Jesus Christ. And he took the punishment that we deserve so that the gap could be bridged between our sinfulness and God's holiness. Christianity is about faith in the fact that that happened. Christianity is not a religion, it's a faith. Religion is about all these things that you do. Christianity is about what was done. And that's why one of Jesus's final words on the cross, it is finished. I know you're saying it's finished, Jesus, but I got to do some stuff. No, Jeff, shut up. It is finished. Your part is to follow suit and descend. Humble yourself, Jeff realize your sinfulness realize your inability realize your ineptitude and humble yourself before me and allow me to be your savior Amen. christianity is about descent not ascent that's every listen <laughs> know this i don't care what anyone tells you or what even maybe some bad sunday school lesson taught you at one day god hear me god does not reward nice people for doing good things I mean this. I I thought about this sentence. God does not reward nice people for doing good things. God grants grace and inheritance to those who recognize the good things that God has done. Amen? That's Christianity. I'm not pastor of the church because I'm the better Christian in this room, I assure you. Everybody knows that? Say amen. (laughs) Amen. That was wow. (laughs) Never ask that question again. Some people need a pastoral visit. Okay. No, it's just the truth though. It's just the truth. This is not a room of good people who God loves us and picked us to go to heaven because of what we do. Our assurity and hope is based on the fact that Jesus is good, that he died for my sins, that he rose again from the dead, defeating sin and death, and that he says, Jeff, put your faith in me and you're coming with me, son. That's Christianity. And that gives us such hope. Because, man, I'm all over the place, aren't you? You? Good days, bad days, in-between days, maybe more bad days than good days. And you can, how can you have hope when you don't even know what the day's gonna look like for you? But I have hope because my faith is sealed, not based on my performance, but based on what Jesus Christ has done for me and based on the fact that God has promised me grace because of my faith and God doesn't waver on his promises like I do. And so my faith is anchored. It is solid. I don't have to worry about it. That should get an amen. amen. Our faith is anchored In the past. And by the way, that belief in what God has done, the Bible refers to it as us being born again. And so, the one thing is this while Christians are not people that do good in order to get into heaven, they are different. The Bible says that when we put our faith in Jesus, we confess our sins and put our faith in Jesus that we have been born again. And just in the same way that when you are born, you're born into a, a new life with people around you in a language you don't know, doctors smacking you on the bottom, you don't know why. There's a whole lot of stuff going on that is completely outside of your control. You're like an alien into a foreign land, everything's new. So too the Bible says you're new. You're you're not perfect, but you're not the person you used to be anymore. And you're born into a new community, in a new faith, with a new life, and a new and blessed hope. Our hope is anchored in the past. Number two, our hope is active in the present. He says in verse three that we are born again to a living hope. And here's what that means. Though our faith is anchored in the past, and though those events in the past absolutely happened, I was at the sites myself this this last year, they happened. Our faith is, is absolutely historically true, but it's not just some old thing that has no real application for us today. Unfortunately, some people actually believe that. If, if we believe in what Jesus did then, we're covered, and now we just sort of bide our time until heaven comes, but there's not really anything that our faith does in the in-between. That is not true. Our faith is a living, hope that is anchored in the past, but our hope is active in the present. It changes the way that we view life and the way that we endure life. Because when we understand what Jesus went through to deal with our biggest problem in life, then we have absolute assurity and absolute hope that he's going to get us through everything else. If he'll deal with that, if he'll go to those sorts of lengths to make sure that a sinner like me actually has access to heaven then I could trust him with everything else. This is why the apostles go from scared to death of prison to whatever. I mean, Paul was amazing the way he did this kind of stuff. People would try to threaten Paul all the time. They were constantly trying to shut him up. They couldn't do it. They would say, we're gonna put you in jail. All right, then I'm gonna convert all your prison guards. We're gonna kill you. Well, to die is gain. We're gonna beat you. Oh, sufferings of Christ. I'm in. Like nothing you could do affected him because he had great hope Knowing that no matter how difficult life got, God was going to carry him through. And even if it meant the end of this life, there was still something even beyond. I'll tell you guys, man, I met with a couple just this week that got what looks like it could be a really difficult medical diagnosis. And and if it's the worst case scenario, it could be really bleak. Just don't know yet. And so I spent some time talking with them, and it was unbelievable. These guys, they had all sorts of concerns, all sorts of, if you will, worries, but I'll use that with a small W, but none of them had to do with themselves in this medical problem. All of them were like, I just, we have this one family member that doesn't know Jesus yet, and we're just, we want to make sure that they know Jesus before we're gone. And we have this other family member over here that doesn't know Jesus. And we have, that's, that's all they talked about was about all the people in their family that don't know Jesus. Never once did they go, I don't want to die never once. Where does that come from? I mean, honestly, who do you know? Name a people group out there in the world anywhere that has the ability to with joy go through sufferings more than Christians do. It's not because Christians are cheesy, though many are, I'll be fair. It's not. There was a person who was in the hospital dying of cancer and the nurse, true story, the nurse was writing in his chart and wrote this intending it to be a slam wrote down, the patient is inappropriately joyful. (laughs) He was dying of cancer in his last couple of weeks. The patient is inappropriately joyful. Intended it to be a slam. Look, the patient is not naive. The patient is not delusional about his situation. That man was not naive about what his end would look like in that hospital. That man was not a product of a self-help guru or one himself. That man was a Christian and the fact that he had hope in Jesus meant that he didn't, didn't matter anymore. He held on to his life loosely because he had hope in something outside of himself that was active in the present, that gave him strength to get through anything that came his way. That hope is active today. And there are people in this very room that are crumbling under life circumstances. You need Christian hope. And I'm telling you right now, you keep searching everywhere out there for other things to give you hope, to help you get through. It doesn't exist. Stop searching and come to Jesus. That's the only hope you have. Jesus is the only hope you have. Our hope gives us, it is active in the present, then finally, our hope anticipates our future. In verse 3, he said, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Christians have an inheritance in Jesus Christ. Christians aren't just people who have been forgiven of their sins, slate wiped clean, and then we just go on about our lives. God saved us so that He might adopt us. That's what the Scripture said. We just spent a whole Sunday on this just a couple of weeks ago. That God is now our Father. We're we're called joint heirs with His Son, Jesus Christ. We now are part of a family. And God has an inheritance. The beautiful thing about an inheritance, not to pound on this nail too much, but inheritances aren't earned, inheritances are given. It is just through the grace of God that He says, you're my son, and I have an inheritance for you. And that inheritance is incredible. And look, guys, there are so many things. When, when you think of all the things that we put hope in, the things that we treasure and invest in that are here today and gone tomorrow, it's ridiculous. Whether it be our physical selves, whether it be toys or people or whatever it is that we invest in and put hope and they're gone. But we're told here that we have an inheritance that will never fade, that is incorruptible, that is unfading. That means literally it never loses its beauty and that it's being kept in heaven. In other words, no one's breaking in that safe and stealing this inheritance from you. It is secure, it is assured you. We have the hope of heaven. We have the hope that even though all of these things around us seem to be falling down, just this last week, in a school or a a shopping mall or whatever, I don't even remember what it was, but in Kenya, 147 people, mostly Christians, who were praying were gunned down to their death by Muslims. Another airplane crashed, apparently, from what we know so far, unless I've missed some updates, because the co pilot locked the pilot out of the cabin. He was suffering from severe depression that seems to have maybe been kicked off because his girlfriend dumped him the day before and everyone died. I mean, there's wickedness, sinfulness, death, destruction. Everything around us is falling apart, and everything you own is falling apart. Everything about you is falling apart. Kids, look at your parents. I mean, everything is falling apart, but God says there is an inheritance that is just plain different than all of that. It will never fall apart. It, moth and rust will not corrupt any of these things. It is an inheritance that will last forever. There is a heaven, an eternity where there will be no suffering. There will not be cancer. There will not be depression. There will not be suicide. There will not be any of those things. There will be no skint knees and tears over pain. There will be no death. There will be no sin. None of that. And even this earth, God is putting back together. There's a new heaven and a new earth where everything will be restored to the way it's supposed to be. That is an incredible inheritance. And on top of that, there are rewards. There's kingdom rule that's granted to Jesus' followers. We see stories of of pearly gates and streets of gold, and he's preparing a place for us. And all those things are amazing. But you know the best part is? We get Jesus. (laughs) I mean, the God of heaven and earth, the most valuable, important, and powerful thing in all the earth says, you're going to be with me. I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be my son. You're going to be with me. We get him. And then out of that, 1 Corinthians tells us that eye has not seen and ear has not heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Like, you know that desire in you? Like when you see the news and when you hear those horror stories, that thing in every single person that just feels like it's got to be better than this, like we've got to fix this because this isn't okay. That is because you have been born with an innate desire for something way, way more than this world has to offer. You were born with something planted in you by God himself to make you desire something better than here. And he says it's real. That desire itself is proof of it. And you have, for those who follow Jesus, put their faith in him, an absolute assured inheritance that will never, ever fade away. Man, I blow it all the time. But because of my faith in Jesus, because of the work that he's done in the past, I have absolute, assuredly, I am confident, I will be in heaven Hopefully that's good news for some of you, but from the other answer early, some of you might be like, I hope he's not next door to me. (laughs) But look, I have hope, and I don't mean like maybe it'll work out, but no, 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 that's where my hope is, that's where I'm going, that's where I'm going to be, and I'm assured of it. But let me tell you one thing. The Bible does give us one piece of advice out of the book of Proverbs regarding hope. In the book of Proverbs, it says this, hope that is deferred or or put off, hope that is deferred makes the heart sick. Hope that's deferred makes the heart sick. And and let me explain to you why I bring that up. If if there's one thing that pastoral experience has taught me, it's this regarding salvation. Because here's the thing, you would think that if someone was living long enough and they kept hearing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the hope of heaven, the forgiveness of sins, that if they kept hearing that over and over and over, though they may keep going, no, not today. No, not today. No, not today. But over time, you'd think it would almost like just wear them down. You know what I mean? Like soften the heart little bit by little bit, like water softens ground little bit by little bit. But that's just not usually true. I mean, pastoral experience... And even some of the scriptures, though it's not a guarantee. I mean, I've seen people come to miraculous rebirths in their late 80s, though they had spent a lifetime in Mormonism, for example. But for the average person, the more that they push off this invitation of hope, the more that they go, "Mm, not for me today, not for me today, it doesn't actually soften their heart, it tends to harden their heart. And that's why, in the Bible, The quote-unquote day of salvation, the day when we receive the grace of God, it is always, always spoken about in the present tense. Our hope is based in the past, and our hope gives us a future, but the day of salvation, according to the Bible, it's always today. Today. Don't put this off. Don't let your heart get hardened over and over and over to the point that you lose even the ability to make such a choice, that your heart is so hardened that you're blind to the truth of the Scripture Don't keep walking out that door without hope in Jesus, having no idea what's going to happen out there. Head-on collisions just this week, right? You don't know. You have no idea. And the Bible says, look, hope deferred that is put off makes the heart sick. And my desire here is that, man, we're not trying to build some giant church. This is not about heritage's name. Get saved and go to another church. It doesn't matter. But listen, don't leave this place with a sick heart. Jesus is offering you salvation. Today, April 5th, 2015, is the day of salvation for you. For you. Stop putting it off. Your heart knows it's true. You know it's true. The Holy Spirit is pulling at your heart now and Jesus is begging you, will you receive this gift? Because this is a gift of grace, but it needs to be received. So will you come to him? he created you, he loves you, he can make you new, and he can give you hope. The Bible tells us that when we put our faith in Jesus, the way we do that is we confess our sins, we, we in prayer, come to the Father and say, Lord, I am a sinner, I have fallen short of your, I, I, I can't do this on my own, I am a broken man but I'm just putting my faith in you. I believe in you, Jesus, that you are the son of God. I believe in you, that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. And Lord, I want to be yours. And then when that happens, God does a work. His spirit is placed inside of you. He begins to grow you. You, you then, in, ideally, you become part of a family of faith. God has adopted you into a family. And so you come into, whether it's a church like this or a church somewhere else, you come into a family of faith and you start to grow and learn about God's grace in your life and his plan for your life. You learn about hope and faith and all of these things. And the Bible also calls us that we would be baptized. Baptized. Baptized is that, kind of weird, let's just be honest, it's a little strange that we have a big gathering going and we got a hot tub over here that some people in full clothing are going to come forward in front of people and get in, myself included. But, But baptism is a significant picture and part of the Christian faith that Jesus commands us to do. When, when we go into the baptismal here, people who are committing their lives to Jesus are lowered down into the water, and it's symbolic of the fact that Jesus Christ himself, once he was killed, was laid in the tomb. But as I love to say, especially to the kids when I'm baptizing them, did Jesus stay in the tomb? And they go, no. And I go, then I'm not going to leave you underwater either. And so when we are raised up, it signifies so many things. The sins being washed away, new birth, and also the fact that our faith and hope is now in Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. Can you just imagine? I mean, just think about it. I I saw a quote someone wrote about it earlier. I'm completely paraphrasing, but he said, on that Sunday morning, there was a party in hell. The demons were celebrating, toasts were going all around. There was, maybe there was a live video feed on the body of Jesus to say, look what Lucifer did, he fooled everybody and they killed Jesus. And there was a party and then some eyes opened and everything changed. And so we go into this baptismal as part of a public declaration to everyone here that we choose to, be, we have been baptized with Jesus. We are now identifying ourselves with his death and his resurrection And with the new hope that he promises us, that we have been born again. And so you have opportunity for that this morning. Some of you have already met with pastors and talked with us about that. And you're going to come forward and you're going to jump right in and we're going to dunk you and it's going to be a party and a celebration. Others of you haven't yet, but listen, come. There's going to be some elders and pastors here to talk with you in line about what you're doing. We have the towels. We'll get you t-shirts if we need to. We'll figure it out. But listen, don't defer hope anymore. Because if you have not put your faith in Jesus yet, you're still in the realm of absolute hopelessness. But because of the resurrection of Jesus and our faith in him, Christians, the one thing we have, we have been removed from hopelessness and we've been given hope. And we want you to have it too. So Jesus is asking you, come, come, come to me. Come experience, come be born again, come get hope because everything else out there is tricking you and leading you down a dark path and Jesus is the only hope you have. Let's pray. God, even as we bow our heads in this place, I know for a fact there are hearts beating rapidly in this room. For some, it's people that have already put their faith in you and they've made the decision today to be baptized and they're nervous and anxious and excited all at once. And I pray, God, that you would do such a work in them, that this would be such a defining moment for their life, that when their own heart condemns them, from their sin and tells them, God can't love you. How could God love you? May they even be able to look back in this event right now and go, no, I have been reborn. I have been remade. I am a child of God and I have hope. And may this baptism be a significant moment and reminder of that for them. For others in this room, Lord, there's nervousness because they know people here that don't know Jesus. And they desire that their friends and loved ones that are with them experience the same hope and joy that they have. Lord, we don't want our loved ones to go to hell. We want them to be with us in heaven, and you're the only way. And so, God, I pray for all of those people in this room that are, that are nervous for their loved ones. I pray, God, you would even inspire by your spirit their very prayers for their loved ones. May there be such prayer and worship going on in this room. And then, God, I know that there's people in here whose heart is beating a little faster right now because they've never made such a commitment. God, maybe even right now, though, their heart beats fast and maybe they know they should. Maybe they're already even wrestling with pride. I can't go do that. What will my family think? How will I explain this? How will I get dry clothes? What am I going to do? It's just weird, all of those things. But I pray, God, that they would understand that Christianity is about descent. And I pray, God, that they would descend, that they would humble themselves that they would be so blown away by your grace and mercy and the hope that you promised them that they can't even pay attention to pride anymore, that you would, by your spirit, strengthen their legs and lead them to the waters. And then, Lord, for the rest of us, maybe our heart's beating fast because we just remember the hope that you've given us. We remember our own baptism. We remember our own conversion. So, God, for those people in this room, may they sing, with reckless abandon, praising the God that has given his life for us. So we commit this time to you. We ask that your spirit would move in this place, in Jesus' name. At this time, we're gonna stand and sing, but before you do, if you're a candidate for baptism, come on down. If you need Jesus and you know who you are, come. Do not default, do not push hope back anymore. Come receive hope. And the rest of us, let's stand and sing.